call Andy Smith. Calling Andy Smith. Mobile. Hello. Hello, sir. How are you? How art thou? <laughs> um, I'm good. I want you to know that I'm uh, I'm letting Mexican food get cold so that I can talk to you for this. That's how much I love you. Wow, that's really kind. You could just eat it while we talk. It's fine. <laughs> That'll be. That's probably like the hell version of ASMR. <laughs> we'll just take it out and post. You know, it's wither up on the case. You can take care of it. Just letting, just letting my fat mouth sounds come through the microphone. <laughs> Hope you guys dig it. <laughs> uh, you know, that's okay. Did you go to the zoo yesterday? I didn't. No, uh, we we did go to High Point. I did get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Okay. Um, Actually, I don't care if this stays in or not, but sure. that's the one and done, right? Yep. Okay, that's what I need. Yeah, so <laughs> we should just make the podcast, uh, you know, the, the tips on how to get J&J. Well, you know, at Walmart, <laughs> uh, at the Walmarts across the area are the ones that um, are the closest that have, like, read a, you know, um, we have a, a mutual friend that's coming into town that um, uh, is getting it um, soon at, because, through the Walmarts, through the various Walmarts throughout the area. This this can't stay up, right? Uh, but, uh <laughs> Well, uh, yeah. Walmart's Walmart's got the best access to Bill Gates' 5G that he's going to put in us. Well, I think and when I think of the crucifixion scenes depicted <laughs> in art, I think of Walmart. Uh, <laughs> um, Keeping it in, don't care. Okay. Um. So you got it. So now, now you're done. Now you're vaccinated. I am vaccinated. Yes, I've gotten it. I I have received it. Chelsea, Chelsea uh, got her second dose yesterday and nice. I told somebody the other day, I need like, there, there's, there's a dental thing I need to get done, but mm-hmm. my personality, whatever, I'm, I'm not going to make that appointment. And so I was like, I need, like, I need my childhood mom figure to make appointments like that for me. And so right. signing up for two shots that the second one is worse, not happening. So, I mean, it, it would, it could happen, but like, it's, it's a harder ask the, the single one and done. It's like, all right, boom, it's, it's over with. Wow. Should, should we sort of litigate your issues? You yeah. Know? Yeah. Let's get into it. Let's just let people listen in <laughs> on my, my undealt with trauma. Oh <laughs> um, yeah. No, no, I understand. I understand what you mean. I mean, I still, every time I do the dishes, I, there's a part of me that, is waiting for somebody to come out of the corner and say, what a great job you just did. I'm so proud of you. Uh, so like, or like when we pay the mortgage. I'm like, where is the confetti? You know, where yeah. is it? Right, right, right. I did it again. Yeah. Uh, I kill. Like I'm killing it. Uh, yeah. I told right. Chelsea yesterday, I I'm telling you how easy it is to manipulate me. If you just say, I did something awesome. I'm going to keep doing it. Like, yes. I, even knowing that you're doing it, I will continue to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you, yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, I want to talk about participation and stuff like this, this project, which is a really cool ongoing project the church has been doing. I, I kind of thought that, that, you know, my, how much I've tuned in is probably 
tethered to the fact that I am participating. But you know what I mean? Like I, I'm totally plugged into this project, but I wonder, you know, if I, if we were to have this call, if I would have just been, you know, um, <laughs> caught, caught five minutes of two of them. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, not, not really, but you know what I mean? It's, it's a weird thing where I think if you're a kid who was, um, uh, and yeah, this, and this can't, I mean, I, I can't imagine the state in, but if you're a kid who was affirmed constantly, like I was, it never leaves you. And, yeah. Uh, it, there, and, and you know, I was the youngest boy, I had four older sisters, you know, I was sort of the prize child. And even if all, you know, all of the ways I've grown, there's a part of me that's always going to be that little boy, you know what I mean? In some ways. Of, uh, of a million percent, yes. That that is why I want to be the the happy fun boy that makes people laugh because <laughs> my 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 eight year old self <laughs> needs like they're laughing. They like me. I can tell. Right, happy fun boy. I, I relate to the happy happy fun boy um, <laughs> archetype. Absolutely. Um. All right. Now now that we've given people, uh, you know just a, a, oh, yeah. a brief glimpse into our psyche. Do I, get, I was going to say, do I get final cut of this thing? Um, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. You do. Um, I'll so, import to audacity. <laughs> so uh, you get to be, you're like bat and cleanup. You're, you're the right. last one in all of this. And uh, just give for people that don't know you, cause I actually got a text yesterday from someone. I kind of have this assumption that this is just like, our 40 neighborhood people that are listening to these. Right. And uh, a, a friend of mine that is doing something for the disc golf shop um, messaged me. and was like, I'm really loving this series you're doing with neighborhood. Now it, <laughs> it was, huh. it, it was both like, Oh, that's extremely cool. And also what, what have we been saying on these anyway? <laughs> yeah, what, am I, what am I liable for? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, you mean like my background? Yeah. Or? So give, yeah, give okay. people a little, just cause I don't remember the last time we recorded together, but your role may have changed just oh, in yeah, general. Oh, yeah, my day job yeah. definitely changed. Uh, yeah, I mean, my, my day job, yeah, I'm uh, editor at Charlotte Magazine um, and a couple of our other um, peripheral publications in North Carolina, a couple of parent publications. Um, and yeah, um, but I also, um, my background is primarily arts writing um, and that can be anything from criticism to, uh, you know, uh, when you go to a when you go to a gallery and you and you and you see a show, you, the, it comes to the catalog typically. If it's if, um, they don't as much as they used to, unfortunately, but um, there's a lot of literature in there, interviews with the artists or sort of analysis of what you see in that show. I, you know, I've written a lot of that stuff as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, visual art has always sort of been. I mean, I've always been a general arts writer, but visual art sort of been the main central focus of a lot of my work and that's just um stood me from my days in college i was the arts editor of a school newspaper and um yeah and just kind of was lucky enough to maintain some kind of career in that since since college um but yeah written for uh art specific publications and all that stuff um yeah that's it i don't have any idea um how how accurate what I'm about to say is, but it feels like it feels correct. And I think you'll like it based on what you said 10 minutes ago. Uh, but very prolific in it too, like a ton of, a ton of writing and not, um, for me, the thing that I appreciate about it is I, I heard someone say yesterday that, uh, 
they got like a, an Egyptology degree and then they realized that the only way, the only way to, uh, to get a job in that was to teach it. And then they realized this right. is just a pyramid scheme. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> and I, and I'm just now realizing that that's the joke is that, yeah. uh, but, uh, <laughs> Yikes! Oh I hate myself. Yeah, like yeah. I, I, wow. that, Excuse me, I got to jump out of. <laughs> yeah, uh, that did that did not dawn on me until just now. Uh, uh, yeah, but ahead, so a lot of people, a lot of people that do art stuff, they just end up in it because that's what they have to do to keep going. But you have a real, like, actual passion for this kind of thing. It's not a. It's yeah. not just a vocational thing that you just do because it's your day job. You actually enjoy this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I think that I'm lucky enough to not, you know, I and I think you and I not to make this whole thing about, you know, our similarities, but I think we're also people that have dabbled in a lot of stuff. Sure. Um, And to me, I was, you know, I got just like with music, I I only got sort of and I think we've, we've mentioned this before, this word conversational in the language of visual art and and music instead of being completely fluent. And so I, you know, I. I kind of just was, I was exposed to it at the right time. I was a kid in middle school and I was into comic books. We were taken to the Andy Warhol um, center up there in Pittsburgh. I forget the the actual formal name of it, but that really blew my mind in terms of what art can be and what it is in reaction to and, and how it's not just sort of a bellwether of today, but, you know, sort of takes man's entire continuum into consideration, you know, and, and people like Bearden who were, we're going to be talking about kind of came from a like study I, he studied science he uh, was almost a pro baseball player he had all of these interests and, and dabbled and, and to me I, I find a lot of kinship with that um, idea of you know I I, I want to try I want to tactically I want to understand tactile in a tactile sense what it means to create. And then I, I would like to share, I like to share in with the audience and, and the joy of it and, and, and the witness of it. And I think that that's a really fun place to be. Um, but, you know, I, arts journalism is not uh, the, the most lucrative path. Sure. Um, and it's not one that, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people who write about the arts do it because they, you know, they, they just, it's just a, a micro obsession for them. It's just something that they, think about a lot and um, can't really ever kind of pull themselves away from. And I don't write about it. There was a while there that I was writing about it a ton on a daily basis. But these days, you know, I, I kind of pick my spots a little bit more than I used to. Yeah. You're not, you're not hustling after every single side gig or whatever to try to (laughs) just make ends meet. Um, Exactly. I I don't, I don't know why it just hit me, but the, the picture of you uh, growing up West Virginia and then, seeing Andy Warhol and that exhibit and realizing like, Oh, there's a big other world out there. Yes. Artistically because it, and I'm not, this is reductionistic and I'm not trying to uh, do the thing that everybody does about West Virginia. Cause it is a very multi-layered, beautiful place, sure. but Andy Warhol definitely is different from that, from your experience growing up. Yeah. And I think, you know, just being, you know, it it was he was a sort of entry point into Basquiat and all these people that you know. I, yeah, I mean, I was a young white kid and you know, uh, growing up on the side of a mountain. And you know, to me, 
it, I, this was sort of an entry point to all of these worlds I had no idea about, and not just Studio 54, but just the experience. What is it like? You know, I think it created empathy more than anything. I think it really helped create or helped form my sense of empathy. Uh, what does it mean to be a black man in America? And you learn so much from Basquiat through that. Um, yeah. You can never really truly grasp it, you know, but, you know, and for Warhol being a gay man, being out in a time where people were not out <laughs> sure. by and large, you know, for the most part. Uh, and so I think it, it instilled some bit of, you know, also honestly, some progressivism in me from a very early age. Uh, but also, you know, I, I guess that would be sort of the macro, but the, the other aspect being just empathy, just, just the pure, I, I enjoy, um, the opportunity to kind of live in that and live in their work and sort of let it envelop you and understand, uh, what they're trying to do. And, um, you know, and I think, I was thinking a lot about this because this week, um, we had the little Nas X thing, you know, the, oh, right. little, uh, a momentary satanic panic <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, Home- homeschool moms are still typing as we speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, the thing about it is, and, and somebody had brought up, I think a really important point about him taking ownership over something that he had been threatened with his entire life. I mean, uh, and I think, you know, the cross is similar in that way. The symbology that has been used as a sort of a battering ram. Um, and you know, a lot of satanic imagery is funny because it's like, it's really pop culture stuff is what we consider to be satanic imagery. Mm-hmm. It's like a Slayer album cover is like, <laughs> you know, constitutes half of what we think of when we think of things like hell and, 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 and Satan and all that stuff. And so to me, it's like being scared of a leather jacket. It's like not, <laughs> it's not. You know, it's not that it's not as threatening as it seems to people. And I think if you if you take in the entire breadth of even art history and how hell has been depicted or how heaven's been depicted, you know, it really expands your mind. And it's not all, you know, sad, uh, you know, frescoes or, you know, you know, you know, we, and I get into that in the essay in a bit about how um art history is a lot more nuanced than we think it is and, and it's there are a lot more perspectives involved and a lot of theological questions that you and i might talk about um are you know those questions have been had out in paintings for you know centuries yeah explored in on with that medium um yeah the one of the other things that i really appreciate and we've we talk about this i think we even mentioned a minute ago but that we've talked about before <laughs> i heard uh Nate bergazzi has got a new comedy special out, and yeah. I, I can't remember the name of it, but I heard him talking about this on a podcast a couple of years ago where he said, if you want to know what America thinks about something, just ask me what I think about it because I'm just the most normal person. Like, right, right. like if, you, right. if you want to know what, like, like collectively we think about little Nas X's shoes, just kind of ask me, just top of brain, that's going to be kind of where everybody's at. And what he's saying yes. is I'm not exceptional in any way. I'm just normal. And uh, right. so I, I'm going to transition now into you. I'm not saying that you're not, you're not exceptional. But what I do mean is uh, I am incredibly normal. that yeah. <laughs> the thing that I appreciate is that you bring a kind of normalcy to art, to a world that like feels like I'm – either by my own doing or by gatekeepers doing have been kept out of, you know, like I'm either, I'm either too cool for that. Like, and like the guy's like putting his hand on the back of a pickup truck, like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't do any of that. Uh, which is like my own doing, or it's like needlessly made into something that I can't be a part of because I don't have the language for it or whatever. 
And I think yeah. the thing that I appreciate about you is that you do, I mean, you obviously write about it extremely well and at a high level, the highest levels, but you do it in such a way that brings kind of the every man into a scene that kind of is built to keep people out of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the intention. I, I do think, you know, I wrote this thing about abstract art a couple of years ago and, you know, I, to me, I, I, you know, things are cyclical. You learn something like you, you're a musician and you, you learn something at the beginning of your career or your, your path to being a musician. And then you, you always circle back around to that thing. Like, oh, okay. It turns out to write a song you know, these four chord structures seem to work and still can create beauty and still can create complexity. You end up looking at it through a more, more and more complex prism over time. Sure. But you find it like, you know, music is still a visceral thing. And to get back to that visceral thing, you, you have to break, you know, you have to explain it in a way that's digestible and you have to be able to, you have to be able to talk about what's the point of even being into this stuff if you can't talk about it. Um, and so to me, that's, you know, I, that it's, it's partly, it's partly that I, I find that, you know, there was one time someone told me at a museum, this was really early on and I, and I was just getting into Jackson Pollock, right. Who was like the, uh, as you know, the abstract, you know, 101, this is like the, <laughs> the guy. Well, um, he, he's the one that your uncle has said, it's just a bunch of paint splatters. Exactly. But exactly. if you stand in front of one of his pieces at MoMA in New York, you just stand there for two hours and don't know why. Yeah, you might start crying. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing is, you know, someone asked me, well, if it was making a sound, what sound do you think it'd be making? And that to me, like, really changed me because it was that. like, oh, we're like, oh, we're allowed to be, you know, it's fun to intellectualize, you know, especially you know if it's it, to me it's it's fun it's fun to read stuff that's real nerdy heady stuff uh but when it comes down to it i want to be able to talk about art like i would at a bar uh yeah. and 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 it just i mean and honestly it came out of being somebody who's into movies and the way movie people talk to each other the way uh, comic book people talk to each other is just with this uh, just conversational there's shorthand there's cross media comparisons like to me that's the most fun you know and bearden being somebody who knew that because he was so engrossed in jazz and so he painted jazz so much um and and the, and the people who were playing jazz because he i mean it's just that he knew that there's a musicality there it, it goes beyond just like what you're seeing on the page or what you're seeing on the canvas like it can it's you can trust the viewer to fill in the gaps when they're looking at something. Um, and so I, you know, yeah, it's just, it, it, to me, it comes back to just not wanting to be a turd about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just, and like, if I, you know, the, what's the best way to get through to people? It's not to condescend to them. Well, um, well it's, and you've said it with, with other mediums, it, it, this is not a specific thing to art. I mean, there are, right. there are theologians that are oh. in, I mean, like, in the most grotesque ways, just trying to like be self-referential, try to keep themselves above everyone else. And ultimately, like if you can't speak to a child, there's this theologian, Robert Jensen, that, mm -hmm. uh, that Chris Green put me onto that. He's a, Chris is a student of, and he, he wrote a little book, um, 
that he wrote with like conversations with his granddaughter. And this guy's like, you know, towering intellect, just like alien kind of smart. And so if, if it can't get down to that level, if you like, if you can't, I love what you're saying with, there's this visceral kind of immediate response to, to art. And if you can't bring all of your philosophizing about it back down to that level of just like experiential being with it, anyone being with it, then it's, it's useless. You know, it's, it's just for nothing. That, and I think if you want to, like, if you want to look at Bearden's paintings and say, what does this say about like penal substitution as a concept, you know, right. Or yeah, atonement. Um, it, you can, you can unpack that if you want. It's a prism. It's, it's there. The, those routes are available to you. And he was a smart enough person to where he was able to inject all of those things and things that we still haven't caught on to, because that's the whole thing too, is it's, it's his art specifically, but you know, he was a humanist. So you're going to see, uh, you know, even I might even pull something from it that is not even there, but he, there's an enjoyment in that engagement. There's an enjoyment of that conversation, which is, you know, what art is all as well. And art is nothing if it doesn't have people looking at it yes. um, and trying to, and to, to, to grapple with it. Um, and so, yeah, and, I, and so, so to me, I love that you can go there if you want. You might not like the answer if you're like, well, did he, you know, was he, I see this thing that he made. He must have been like a devout Christian. He must be reformed like me or, you know, any of those things that people might, uh, you know, assume. If you really want to engage with it, you know, you have to be ready to have your mind changed or be challenged. Is that Maggie? Yeah. Is, can you hear her in the background? <laughs> yeah. yeah she's, I love it. She just there's not a single person on earth that can eat more than her, like proportionally. She just never, she just truly never stops eating. And the moment you stop feeding her, she screams. <laughs> she goes a pterodactyl. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. yeah. So, so obviously you've mentioned it a few times. We're talking about Ramir Bearden. Um, yeah. and so explain the piece a little bit. I'm going to send out your essay to everyone. I'm going to post the picture of the piece. Um, probably sure. as the, as the, you know, little icon for this, this week's podcast. Um, so people can have some sense of it, but explain it a little bit, explain who he is as an artist. Yeah. Um, and then let's, let's, you know, just talk about the piece a bit. Well, yeah. And I think to start with who he was, um, Romy, as his friends called him, he was a really interesting guy. And, you know, to talk about his impact is I almost want to be careful because, you know, he was really talking about the black experience in a way that is incredibly nuanced. I mean, he was an incredibly light-skinned guy. So much that when he was at Boston University, he was asked if he wanted to join the, I think it was the Philadelphia Athletics at that point. Uh -huh. But they said, well, you, it was a white team. You could pretend to be white. Like, you can only join the team if you pretend to be a white guy. Um, and wow. he refused to do that. And he, you know, for all, lit you know, all literature about him says that he was somebody who could have easily gone through life and passing for a, for a white man and made that, made that sacrifice. Um, and, you know, I think that you can make all sorts of, I, I don't think he saw himself as a Christ-like figure for that. I think he just saw it as the right thing to do. Uh, but I do think that you, when you talk about these more humanistic aspects of his paintings, you're talking about, he wrote, he did everything from the mundane everyday life from his childhood here in Charlotte, I mean, it, only a couple of years here, but his living room in New York was actually the, the 
the ground one of the the main venues for the Harlem Renaissance. Um, you know, Duke Ellington was a friend of his parent. You know, these you know he was a, a part of that tradition um, and was forged in that tradition. Um, and so that's amazing. He, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, it's a really really cool guy. Um, but you know, Langston Hughes was also in his home, and you know, we could go you know, for 20 minutes, just on Langston Hughes and, and, and the things that he was writing about how that crosses over with the black church. Or Incredible. With, yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So the idea is, you know, when he was doing these paintings, which were his, I mean, I think it was his first thing that went to Bomo was one, were one of these paintings, these, these passion of the Christ paintings. Um, he was talking about, wasn't just talking about religion or the, you know, like I say in the essay, you know, you could look at the stained glass colors and that in itself could be unpacked as, you know, his how the church has formed his perspective on people and on community. But also, you know, this this idea that there's an ongoing struggle and, you know, grace is part of that transfer, what gets us to the next place and what's carried over, and what tradition means and what um you know, and, and we I talked a little bit about this. You see in every one of these paintings that there, well, most of them, there's a, a Christ has half of his body. It's like bisected in color. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you can look at that from, you know, the, the divine nature of Christ not dying, but the body dying. And, you know, those are two, that's a very obvious thing you can pull from that, but you could also, I mean, there, there's just so many things there's so many micro decisions made in there where you can unpack what this, what seems to be just, you know, a um, cubist interpretation of the, the, you know, death of Christ uh, to be, but, you know, there are all sorts of sort of micro dialogues happening in every one of the, every corner of that piece and those pieces that are associated with them. And so I think it's, it's, it's hard to like pin down because it's so complex. It's hard to say, you know, this is what he was saying. Sure. But really, it was more of a fascination of his. And I think just as the way, you know, there are several accounts of the crucifixion that differ from each other. Uh-huh. Um, I think that you could that uh, each of those paintings represents a different entry point to what he was saying about that event. So really, it's that collection of paintings that I think, in, in, you know, as, as a whole, each might offer something different and something really important or really transformative for people who look at it. Or it might just be like, this is interesting and move on. You know, yeah. some people truly might not connect to it in a way. And I think that that's, I, it's valid. I mean, that's, you know, that's the um, participatory, you know, participatory part of looking at art is, you know, you can opt in or out of that uh, interaction, but, you know, I think it's a lot of fun. So you, you've, described him as a humanist and, and not as like a, you know, Judeo Christian follower kind of thing. What I think that even gives it a different level of intrigue or whatever for why he's making religious art, why he's using religious imagery. Why, why do you think he did it? Yeah. And I, and I think, I, you know, I think his, his spiritual life was probably more complex than I can even give words to. I do think he was somebody who, was a bit mysterious. I mean, I think we think of artists now, we think of like, you know, follow my Instagram <laughs> and, you know, uh, and, he, you know, there are different ways that people pronounce his name. Um, and uh, I think uh, Romer, you know, there's, there are all these ways he was a, a little bit of a mystery, but it was because I think he, 
the, the humanistic aspect of what I would say is, is center of what we're talking about is the fact that he believes that um, we are an evolving species. And we, um, as we learn more about each other and about the way the world works, we change. And I think he would apply that to his own spirituality too. I, gotcha. uh, I, I would say that, you know, just the, the paintings themselves are all about transference, right? They're about the the generational um what does the future look like what are we doing for the future um and so i think that he would probably have and not to speak for him enjoyed um a certain amount of vagueness there Mm -hmm. um and you know there's no it's no secret that he likened you know much of the the plight of uh, much of the plight of people, peoples in the Bible to the uh, what it is to be a black person in America. And so I think that there is uh, he was always in conversation about race and what it means. Um, and and so to me, you can't take that part out of the equation. You can't take the fact that we're talking about oppression and we're talking about, um, you know, which I think I think one of the most interesting things about. The tethers those two is this idea of crucifixion is partly about um, the the religious and political structures of the day rarely get it right, right, uh, and and will do and a part of the continuum of doing the wrong thing. So you can't rely on those structures to give you the information that you're seeking. Um, and so to me, if there's anything to be, you know, it's that the the body is where we we learn from each other. The community is where we learn from each other rather than the political structures of the day. Or, um, or the religious structures. Well, yeah, the religious structures being, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, and not to get too too far in this direction, but, you know, those are two, those two political and uh, religious structures are so intertwined in America. Yeah. Um that they're often, you know, indiscernible, indiscernible, conflated for a reason. Um, and, and so to me, when I think of that is one major lesson that I, I, I continue to get out of these works is, you know, this is, it's, it's in conversation with power and it's in reaction to power and what that means. And, you know, in the forties, we're talking forties, this is two decades before, Civil you know, rights. much of the, uh, you know, I mean, he was, he was, he was, he was, I think in his thirties at this point. Um, so he would be in conversation with the, these ideas for the next, you know, several decades of his life. Um, and so I think that that's a fascinating thing too, is that uh, he would go on to wrestle with the, uh, the lessons of Homer or the lessons of, you know, other, um, what some might call mythology or, you know, distinctly American interpretations of mythology or American interpretations of, of religious um, structures, which, you know, we know is there's a, you know, I was, we were at a gas station recently and there was a, um, a cross. It was like a bumper sticker, you know, which uh-huh. are always great and always positive and uplifting. They do so much. Uh, it's so, there was one so important. Cross that was made out of eight, uh, you know, uh, uh, machine guns or, you know, oh, automatic rifles. good. Um, good. Uh, and it was just like, to me, it was like, you know, the, it, it was, it was, it, it happened after you had assigned this, you know, uh-huh. essay, and, and it was right before the little Nas X thing. So it's something I've been thinking about a lot in terms of what the cross has meant. 
and how um it's we've we it's always you know i was i'm a, I'm a former young life kid which i'm sure a lot of people that have i know a lot of people that have come to our church are and you know i don't know have you ever been through a young life week not not through a week i've been to a like played music for a couple of services sure and uh and i, and I apologize I, I think i feel like i'm, I'm overtaking here but no um, please go um there was always the progression of talks that happened throughout a, a typical young life week and the cross talk was always the thing that was like the big heavy right uh-huh. of the week and it was always, you know, it's, you know, and not that this, this is not on Young Life at all, but I think this is just a, a product of, uh, of what we're talking about. It was always considered to be the one that was like really like cleared the room. Like, you know, this was the one that like was the, supposed to be the heaviest. It was the one where people cried the most. It was the one, it was, it always felt to me completely, and not, and, and this is just my own experience. It always seemed to be the, the missing ingredient of joy. Uh, or any kind of feeling, but just like rottenness, sure. <laughs> you know, I, uh, and self-deprecation coming out of it. Uh, when I was a kid, you're a teenager and you're being told you killed Jesus because you, right. you know, do what teenagers do. Right. Which gets in that whole, you know, penal substitution thing we're talking about, and, and, you know, grappling with that. And what is that, you know, um, you know, this idea of this God who was not satisfied uh-huh. and like he needed blood and <laughs> right. hate, hated your guts, you know? <laughs> and, you know, I, I think about, you know, you know, so much of so much wrong has been done with people who have crosses hanging on their necks, you know? And it's, it's just such a weird, such an interesting thing. So I, you know, I guess to me, what I love about this, this conversation, the, the idea of like, let's engage with it on art levels that people don't have that same baggage. And people, I mean, people can come to it in a way that's a little bit more, a um, little bit less um, out of fear. It's it, it, or a little. It's almost like when I see this painting for the first time. I don't know about you, it immediately looked different than everything I'd ever seen that was painted of the crucifixion scene. Would you agree with that? Oh my goodness! Well, I told you the other day when you sent the email uh, with the essay and the the piece. I'd never seen it. And it was, I mean, it was an arresting kind of image. It was just like, it brought you into it. And yes, there, there are these themes of like, it's obviously deeply heavy, but there's, there is joy present in it. And like, I know, I know we're talking about, you know, it's, we're talking on good Friday and we're talking about that event. And yes, it's a horrid completely. I understand people's impulse to, to, explain it with the horror that it was but sure. absolutely but he's also making a bigger point with it and right. and i think that i think that yeah it's a very compelling very compelling and beautiful piece yeah and i think it it has all of that in there like it, it, there's you know it's a it can be a bummer if you choose to engage with it just on the you know, I, I, and I, and it should be partially right. That's part of that prism is, you know, this is a, a horrific thing to, to witness. And, you know, I think in, in terms of some of the other pieces in the series, it's even a little bit more visceral and uh, some of the more vertical ones that people will see uh, are even a little bit more harrowing. But I, you know, I think that if, if all he wanted to say was one thing about it, he would have just done one painting and it would have been representational. Mm-hmm. And it would have been, uh, or even more representational or realistic. 
but he chose this cubist lens, which, you know, itself implies a prism. So, you know, I, I, I yeah, I, I think it's really fascinating. And I think it's, I think it's, what I like about it is that it doesn't take away your baggage, but it engages with it. Yeah. And it forces you to almost, to, you know, to, 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 you know, grapple with that first, or even let that, welcome that into the conversation. Um, and, and so to me, it's, yeah, I mean, in, in there, the, the other thing is, you know, we, I, I th- also think that if, if that's an entry point to, I think you can find these kind of subjects across Bearden's work, um, even if it's not a literal crucifixion scene, but this idea of of taking our notions and challenging them um, and letting us mourn for our former guilt about certain things or our former um, misinterpretation or, or, you know, our growth of these things um, lets you kind of feel all of that. Um, which is interesting. I don't know. It's, 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 if you let it, it can really take you to an interesting place. I think. I mean, I heard Pete Holmes say recently, uh, he was talking about Jesus and he said that we're, we always, we always assume when we're reading the gospels that we're the humble carpenter from Nazareth and, and we're, we're Rome, you know, like we're, yes. and so I think anytime, anytime that you're trying to, like understand in a new way, uh, Jesus's life, crucifixion, resurrection, anything, anything about his life ministry, um, that looking at it from the underside of, from the oppressed perspective is always going to be more fruitful. I mean, to, Mm -hmm. to put, (laughs) to make religious iconography out of machine guns unironically and like to say like, Jesus is a badass, you know, kind of thing. It's like, Read Philippians too. It he he made himself nothing. He became obedient to death. Like he is, mm-hmm. he is the like foot washing, go to the grave, let yourself be beat to death, Jesus, and not this you know, hoorah. Uh, it's it's just complete insanity. And so to take someone who has a very real experience of what it means to be black in America, whether he's light skinned or not. Um, who's lived it and and has been around Langston Hughes and has been around the Harlem Renaissance and understands the plight of black people because um, he's living it, that person's right. perspective is so much more valuable than yes. trying to understand the crucifixion of Jesus from the oppressor's standpoint. It just, it it's, I can't, that's, ob- that's so obvious, right? It, yeah, I mean, like with everything else, like what we're talking about, it's you know you always cycle back to the obvious. <laughs> and, you know, the, you know, there's always a, um, you know, most of the conclusions one comes to when you're looking at art. I mean, it all comes back to you know, like the, there's there's a conversational version of this, or there's a version of this that exists to be shared among people. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, and not guarded. Um, and you know, that concept of my, you know, so my joy may be in you, you know, you know, you look at the painting and you see the, the glow behind the, the people that are flanking the cross and it's, you know, you see that transference happen and you see how, um, it's not just the message of oppression that's being shared. It's, it's something else. Um, and you know, and, and I think Bearden's, you know, and again, not to speak for him, but he found that, 
uh, a simple, a seemingly simple crucifixion scene was the most conversational way to talk to you about this. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's a really cool thing. Well, I, I really loved it. And I, I want to, we'll talk after, but I, I want to find a way to get this print, um, mm-hmm. in my house. I really, um, I'm really drawn to it. And so I know a lot of, um, a lot of people that I, I respect and, and, and admire they've got kind of their own religious iconography and and things doesn't have to be specifically religious um but they've got it up as a way of kind of uh centering or meditating and just having pieces that that draw you into it into your home um i think yeah i just i really really like it and i think the one of the things that you've been saying it's it's uh what i'm going to be talking about sunday when we we gather for the first time um, just really briefly, because like you heard Maggie, there'll be a hundred kids running around. Um, but that joy is valid. Like it's, Mm -hmm. we, we've been in such a heavy spot and we are people who, you know, neighborhood is a group of people that like, don't want to avoid giving voice to the pain of the world. And we, we don't want to be, you know, the Mickey mouse club. Um, and that's, that's correct. That's a good instinct. But if you do it at the expense of joy, if joy isn't present or the base note of kind of all of this, if you're not able to open yourself to the newness of, you know, what God offers, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a lack. You, you end up lacking in the human experience. And so. Yeah. And, and we also know what comes next, right? Yeah. Sunday's coming. <laughs> After this story. Yeah. And, and so to me, it's hard, you know to to not acknowledge that in sort of the continuum of the entire conversation um and that wink feels present in bearden's piece yes yeah i, I agree. whether he I believes it great. objectively or not <laughs> right. it, it's like that's, it's yeah. present i agree i completely agree and i think that's why it i could never shake it yeah was that it's all gosh it's all in there <laughs> yeah 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 uh it you know and so yeah yeah i completely agree that sounds yeah and um, yeah, it's a really fascinating thing that we are, you know, this is the first time we're meeting in a year or two to, to talk about this, um, in person. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's a weird, you know, really wild. I call it coincidental because, you know, made the decision, but yeah. <laughs> it's more of like a, wow. I mean, what a cool opportunity, yeah. um, on the other side of this, uh, or, you know, on, on you know, hopefully on the other side of this. <laughs> So, um, all right, buddy. Well, thank you for doing this. And I I really, I hope people will, uh, read your piece. I hope they will engage with this work from Bearden and look at all the others too. I I haven't seen any of the others, so I want to, um, send me the links for those. Um, and yeah, just thank you. Thank you for being such a trustworthy person for neighborhood and for, um, and for me. I mean, I, I know that we talk every three minutes, so I'm not, uh, going to perform <laughs> like some big thing, but I do want it on the record that I just really appreciate uh, just how smart you are and how, how important your voice is. So. Well, you know, and of course, you know, I appreciate our friendship. I love that we can talk about this and then something incredibly obnoxious five minutes later. And I think <laughs> that, uh, yeah, we dabble in a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, of course, man. Um, yeah, I love it. If anybody else wants to ever talk about this stuff, anybody ever wants to come with me to a museum who thinks, you know, museums seem like places where they would be uncomfortable. Um, I think it's the most approachable place that you yeah. can go. 
Um, and so I would love to personally take anybody here and pay their way into um, the Mint and, and go check it out. All right, let's do it. Um, all right, man. All right, dude, I will talk to you later. Uh, later. See ya.